I would encourage you to turn and invite you to turn and meet me in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, if you have your Bible, and I pray and encourage that you do. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. They're still getting the kids out. That's good. Praise Jesus. Have fun, Nathan. (laughs) Teach them Jesus on their level. Uh, as you make your way there, I want to tell you, uh, so this week as I've been studying, uh, I've been studying a guy by the name of R. Kent Hughes, R. Kent Hughes, uh, one of the commentators that Kyle and I like to reference as we uh, study through the scriptures together. He wrote a commentary and in the commentary, he uses this great illustration and I'm going to use open with this illustration to kind of help you see where we're going in this text. And he talks about it this way. So when he was younger, as he was courting his soon to be wife. Uh, they weren't married yet. As he was courting her, she gave him a picture. They didn't have technology back then, okay? So they didn't have it on their phone or anything like that. So she had to give him a black and white picture. A black and white picture. Have you ever seen a black and white picture? That's what he had of his soon-to-be wife. And he said, I would take that picture everywhere with me. I would eat with it at the dinner table at, for breakfast. I would put it in the car as I would drive and just to be reminded of what was to come in my future spouse, my future wife. And then one day he said, it all changed. The day that she walked down that aisle, he traded that black and white picture in for the real thing. And he said it was a glorious, wonderful day. And so I don't know how long they've been married. I don't know their their wedding story. But he said, but imagine this for a moment. Imagine if I one day after 20, 30 years of marriage, I looked at my wife and said, you know, I love you. But I actually love the picture more. I want to actually go back to the picture. I want to take the black and white picture as opposed to you. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you just thought, what's wrong with that? Then you need to go see Kyle and get some marriage counseling. Okay, that's not a good thing to have. And he said it would be it would be ludicrous. It would be insane to trade in the real thing for a picture of that thing. It would be like you as parents, right? If your kids have a have a nightmare they're not waking up in the middle of the night screaming for the picture of mommy, daddy. Who are they screaming for? Mommy, daddy. You don't say, you don't yell from your bed. Hey, just look at my picture and everything will be all right. Again, if that's you today and you're like, what's wrong with that? Then Kyle still can do parent counseling as well. Just plug in all kinds of things in here for Kyle today. The reality is they want you. They want the real thing. But the problem is, is is in this text, the the author is about to talk all over again about the sacrifice of Jesus. He's about to talk all about the high priestly office of Jesus once again to the people. And the reason that he's going back over this again for them is this. They are on the verge of going away from the real thing and picking up the old thing. They are on the verge of going away, running from Jesus and picking back up Judaism. And the reason that they're thinking about running from Jesus and picking up Judaism again is because that they are dealing with persecution, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks. They're being persecuted for their faith. And they're asking the question, is Jesus really worth following even in the midst of persecution? And the author of Hebrews is going to give a three-part answer to say, yes, he is. But here's the reality. Many of us in this room, have you ever gone through a season in your life as a Christian where you're like, ah, I'm not really sure following Jesus is really worth it. Because, right, uh, let's be honest this morning in church. Let's be a good place to be honest. Uh, Following Jesus is a difficult task, is it not? Uh, The Christian life is a hard life, is it not? And sometimes I think in our own lives, as we deal with not necessarily persecution in the way that the church here was, but I I think as we deal with the things of life, sometimes I think we catch ourselves beginning to doubt. 
begin to wonder, is Jesus really worth all of this? Is he really worth following as I look at my life and what I'm dealing with today? And I want to argue and show you three parts to this text today to say, yes, he is. Yes, he is, not only because of who he is, but because of what he has done for you and me. Are you with me? So let's look. I got three parts. Part number one, we need to be reminded of our sinful nature. If you take notes, the first thing you need to see from verses one through four is that we need to be reminded of our sinful nature. Look with me at verses one through four to see this truth in action as he's telling them, don't go back to Judaism. And here's why. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In the Old Testament, when we look at the Judaism of the Old Testament and we see the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, this is what he's talking about here when you see in verse 1, for since the law, this ceremonial law, this ability to, to take, or what they used to do is they used to take blood of, of bulls and goats on the Day of Atonement, most likely is what the author is talking about here, and they would take those in and that's how they would get cleansed from their sin. He says, but what are these things? The law is but a what? A shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. In other words, that what they saw and did in the Old Testament was a picture of what was coming in the New Testament, specifically in the person and the work of Jesus. And at this point, they're wanting to go back to the shadow of what it pointed to the true reality of who Christ is. And look what he says about this. Here's what he says. The problem with that mentality of not preserving, persevering through the faith lies. It can never, he says, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. He said the Old Testament Levitical system was unable to completely bring you near to God. That it had, a, it had a flaw in it that they had to keep reminding themselves over and over every year of their sins. Because every year they'd have to come and they would have to make sacrifices for their sins over and over again. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to make the argument this morning. Because I think a lot of people, when they read the Old Testament, they think the Old Testament way of salvation was very different than the New Testament way of salvation. In other words, I think when people read the Old Testament and they see all the laws, the civil laws and the ceremonial laws, they begin to think to themselves, well, the Old Testament must be a works-based salvation. In other words, the Old Testament must be that in order for me to be saved, I had to go and I had to make all these sacrifices. In order for me to be saved, I had to do all these things that God told me to do. But I want to make the argument this morning, and as we're going to see in the next couple of weeks in Hebrews 11, is that the Old Testament saints were saved just like you and me. They were saved by faith, not by works. That the Old Testament was not about works, that the Old Testament was about faith. In other words, what these people were doing is they were coming to God with their sacrifices in faith, saying, God, I'm offering the sacrifice to you, believing that through it you are going to save and cleanse me. That you are going to erase out my sins. And so the idea was the action that they were bringing out, the action that they were presenting was an action that took place in their heart first. But here's the problem with us as people and as Christians. What we typically want to do is we typically like the idea of works-based salvation, don't we? Because works-based salvation puts the 
reality of it on me. I do these things. And I think this is what the Pharisees get in trouble for. But the idea was it was more about the heart of the worshiper than the sacrifices that the worshiper was making. You say, well, how do you get to that, Jeremy? How do you know that it was a, a faith base? They were, they were looking forward to Christ where we in, in, the, in the Christian church were looking back at what Christ has done. Well, it's very simple. Let's look at my man, David. Now, if you know much about me, David is my hero of Scripture besides Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit. But right behind them is my man, David. And when you when I read first Samuel 18, I always I told a, uh, I always like to tell my friends, uh, I say, hey, if you could have one book, if you got stuck on a desert island, you could only have one book of the Bible. What would it be? Mine would be first Samuel in a heartbeat. Just give me first Samuel. I'll read through it every single day until I die on that island. But don't give me second Samuel because second Samuel was when David's life kind of blows up. And it blows up in 2 Samuel because David, who is what I believe the worship warrior, uh, which is why I think I relate to him, David commits adultery with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel. He's supposed to be in war, but instead he sees Bathsheba, Bathsheba, she's bathing, and he invites her in, he commits adultery with her. But then in order to cover his sin, he brings her husband Uriah back from battle. And he says, Uriah, you go and you, uh, you spend time with your wife in order, to, uh, in order to make Uriah believe that the baby he and Bathsheba had created was Uriah's. But Uriah wouldn't do it because Uriah was an upright man. He was a good officer of the military. He said, I'm not going to go be with my wife if my Marines, I just assumed that they were Marines, okay? It's just an automatic assumption. <laughs> He's like, I'm not going to do that if my Marines aren't able to be with their families as well. So David writes a letter to his general and he hands the letter to Uriah and Uriah delivers his own execution orders to the general. And he tells David tells the general to put Uriah where the hardest fighting is. And then when the fighting is to be the most difficult to pull everybody back and allow Uriah to die. So now we've added murder to David's sin. Nathan, the prophet, comes and confronts David on his sin. And David begins to repent and David writes, I believe, one of the greatest repentance psalms out there in Psalm 51. And in this psalm, look at what he talks about really quickly as I read it to you. Look what he talks about when it comes to the heart of the worshiper. Psalm 51, after he's done this great sin and Nathan has called him on it and he's convicted, he prays to God, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. He's saying, he's saying, I'm not just going to be like, oh, I messed up. Here you go, Lord. Here's the sacrifice. I'm good now. Look what he says. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. David comes in faith. David comes with a heart that says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. What is David teaching us? David teaching us this is what a life of faith is all about. A life of faith is trusting in the word and the promises of Jesus. And then out of that trust, begin you begin to live a life of working for him. You see the difference? I don't work to earn God's grace. I work as a means of already receiving God's grace. It's about the heart of the worshiper. But look at verse 3 back in our text of Hebrews chapter 10. He says, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Every year that the people would go back to make sacrifices. Every year that they would bring the boat, the goats and the bulls blood and to take away their sins. Every year they were reminded of their sinfulness. Every year they were reminded of how bad they were. Every year they were reminded of the greatness of their sin in their lives. 
And I think every year they begin to ask the question, Lord, what will you eventually do with all of this? Here's the good thing for our lives. I think the reality is that many of us, in order for us to understand how we persevere, the way that we persevere in our faith when things get hard is we need to be first reminded of the depths of our sin. And as we are reminded of the depths of our sin, then we see our great need for our Savior. Then the love for our Savior increases when we begin to see the debauchery within us, the sinfulness within us. And when we see the greatness and the depth of the gospel even more, then we fall more in love with Jesus and we begin to live more for Jesus. I think about this when I think about the Apostle Paul. In the first, some of the first letters that the Apostle Paul written, he reminds me a lot of myself. Or maybe I remind myself of a lot of him since he lived before me. But when he writes Galatians, he begins with Paul, the apostle of Jesus. That's how I used to be when I got my MDiv. I was like, Jeremy, the pastor of Jesus. But then as I began to walk with the Lord, I began to realize what Paul says in some of his older letters. When he, be like, when he starts, he's like, I'm the least of all the apostles. I'm the chief of all sinners. Because I think what Paul experienced in his life, what many of us should be experiencing in our lives, is that the greater and the more deeper the gospel becomes to us, the more we see the dirtiness of sin that still resides within us. The greater the gospel is, the more that I see that there's still sins in there that that God is still working out. There's still the word of God is still like a a bright light that keeps shining. And every time I think, Lord, I've got it this time. He's like, well, wait a minute. Read this. There's another one. And I keep going back. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Even this week on yesterday, I had to coach basketball. So I was sitting down with some of our uh, some of the men of our church that morning. And I'm like, hey, you know, this is going to be kind of rough because I'm very um, I think one of our partners said passionate about basketball. And I thank you, partner, whoever said that, because that's exactly what I am, very passionate. But sometimes that passion comes out with some sin. If you haven't, don't come watch my games, because it's just there's a lot of things. And so I, I was telling the people, the guys that I was with yesterday, I'm like, hey, um, just pray for me. Because inside of Jeremy, there's this little guy named Lieutenant Bell, and he wants to get out. And when Lieutenant Bell gets out, he's not a good dude. He's not a nice dude. He's like the old man that God is crucifying with the flesh. You know what I'm saying? Does anybody have that little Lieutenant Bell in you? I got that Lieutenant Bell in me. And so one of, uh, one of the guys texted me yesterday and he was like, how did the basketball game go? And I'm like, hey, are you cooking brisket this week? Just trying to change the subject, right? Uh, I actually texted Kyle after the game and I'm like, man, the spirit's convicting me. Because I was talking a little smack to the other coach. And I'm like, Jeremy, why are you doing this? It's little girl basketball. Quit talking smack to them. Represent Jesus. And it's like another moment. The Lord is like, let me remind you of your sinful nature, Jeremy. And why does God do that? I think it's a means of his grace. Because when we're wanting to leave him, when we're wanting not to persevere in the faith, we come to the second part. We get to be reminded of the everlasting work of Jesus. Once again, you won't see your need for the Savior until you realize your sinfulness. And this is exactly what the author moves on to in part two. He says, let me not only let me remind you of your sinful nature in verses one through four that can't completely draw you near to God. He said, but now what I'm going to do is I'm going to remind you. I'm going to reveal to you once again the everlasting work of Jesus. Look at verse five. He begins with this word consequently. I love this word consequently in the original language. It means logically this becomes self-evident. Logically, but this comes to yourself. So think of it like this. Okay, think of it like this. When you, as a parent, 
tell a child, hey, your room is dirty. There is a consequently there. This is a logical self-evidence to the child to go clean your room. I'm not going to tell you to go clean your room because I just told you it's dirty. So what you should logically deduce from what I just told you about your dirty room is that you should take it upon yourself to be a good child and go clean it. Amen. But they don't think that way. And so we sometimes don't think like that either. And so he says, consequently, logically, it is self-evident. And then he talks about two parts of Christ's work. He talks about the incarnation and he talks about the cross. The incarnation, which I'll talk about in a minute, God taking on flesh, Jesus taking on flesh. And then we're going to talk about the cross, which we'll also say in the in the words of theological vernacular is the atonement taking on the cross. First off, he says this. When Christ came into the world, this Christ, this right word here means the Messiah, the one that the Old Testament had prophesied about when he comes into the world. So how does Jesus come into the world? Well, look at the end of verse five. He said, using quoting Psalm 40, verses six through eight, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. Jesus says, I believe what we're seeing here is we're seeing a a divinely conversation taking place specifically between the father and the son. Before Jesus comes onto the earth, he says, sacrifice offers you have desired. You haven't done these things because they were unable to fully, fully perfect those to draw near to you. So therefore, what you have done for me is you have prepared a body for me. Now, some of you, you're going to go and you're going to read this week, Psalm 40, and you're going to look at verses 6 through 8, and you're going to become a little disappointed because you're going to be like, wait a minute. What I read in Psalm 40, verses 6 and 8 is not what the author quotes here in Psalm 40, verse 6, 8 of Hebrews, what's the difference? Does the Bible have all of a sudden a logical inconsistency? See, there's a contradiction in Scripture. Let me explain the contradiction so you can understand it as we dive more into it. Number one, when we have the translation of Psalm 46 and 8 in our Bibles, God has gifted people in our lives that are able to read Hebrew much better than any of us in this room. And what they have done is they have taken the Hebrew text... And they have translated it into our English text. And the author of Hebrews is not unaccustomed to this. But what the author of Hebrews is doing is instead of translating the Hebrew into the Greek here, he's actually translating or actually using the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is what we in the scholarship community call the Septuagint. If you're doing a Bible study, you'll see that like if they talk about the quote, it'll be LXX. That's the Septuagint. That's what they did back then. So what they did is they took the Hebrew Bible, Psalm 40, and they translated it into Greek. And this author is taking the Greek translation and inserting it here. But here's here's what you need to understand. Even though that translation came, there is no difference in interpretation. It means the exact same thing. So while one talks about the ears and the other talks about the bodies, they both interpret the same way that God had prepared beforehand to send his son into the world fully God and fully man. This is what we call the incarnation, God in the flesh. If you don't understand the incarnation, this is what we do every Christmas. Every Christmas we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus. Every Christmas we celebrate the birth of Jesus. This idea that God in his mind brought forth and said, I'm going to take my son. I'm going to bring him into the world through Virgin Mary. So he's going to be without sin and he's going to be fully God and fully man all at the same time. 
This is the incarnation. And the incarnation is extremely important for our understanding of the cross. And he said, don't you need to be reminded of your sins so that you can recognize the everlasting goodness and work and beauty of the incarnation. Look what he says in verse six in burnt offerings and sin offerings. Once again, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So Jesus comes in the incarnation and he comes with a mission. And that's the second part that we're going to see from verses seven down to 10. Verse nine is we're going to see the cross. Jesus came to take on flesh in order to die for our sinfulness. That was his purpose. That's why it says in verse seven, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus has come and taken on flesh in order to be our sacrifice. What the Old Testament, the the shadow couldn't do. Jesus, who is the form of these realities, did. It's exactly what he did. He follows God's will and he follows God's will all the way to a cross. Look at verse eight. The author here is going to give us a commentary on what he just wrote. Verse eight, when he said above. You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These offered according to the law, the Old Testament. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. And he does away with the first, the Old Testament law, in order to establish the second. Well, how does Jesus do that? Do you remember when Jesus is praying in Gethsemane before he gets ready to go to the cross? As he's praying, he's saying, God, if it if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. The cup is the cup of God's wrath. Jesus is about to go to a cross and he's about to take the full punishment of our sin on himself. And then you know what he says at the end of that prayer? Yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus says, I came to be obedient to the point of going to the cross. You see, if you don't understand this, you don't understand. If you don't first understand the value Uh, are the cost of your sinfulness, then you'll never see the value of the cross. Let me give it to you an example. Every couple of weeks, um, my I like to go to South Texas Tech. Can't afford it, but I like to go look. My wife makes so much fun of me because like I go out there and I just I just peruse. I'm like, oh, look at those boots. Those are so nice. Look at the cowboy hat. You know, like I'm looking at saddles. One day my goal is to have my own farm. Okay, so just don't don't judge me. This is a safe place. And I just go and I look and I'm like, I can't afford any of this stuff. But one day, one day I was, I was shopping because like, you know, the Houston Rodeo's coming up. So I got my black cowboy boots and I got my black cowboy hat and I'm getting ready to go to Houston Rodeo. I might even go to the Bay City Rodeo. You know, rodeo season's upon me and that's just kind of my world. I love animals, right? They don't talk back. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> they, they don't. Um, and so I'm sitting there and I, I come up and I see this black belt. And I'm like, ooh, that's a good looking belt. The black cowboy belt, super nice, leathery. I'm like, I really want that belt. So I reach up and I grab the belt and I pull it off the, the little rack there. And I'm like, Whew. yep, I don't like the belt that much. Definitely out of my budget, out of my price range. And so I put it back. Well, the reality is, is that the cross shows us the cost of our sin. That when we look at our sin, we look at our sin price tag and we go, ooh, I can't afford this. I can't pay this. If I really want to be with God, this is what it costs. I don't have that kind of anything. I can't, I can't afford what my sin costs, the penalty of my sin. And then in walks Jesus. 
And he says, don't worry. I paid for it already. And I did it by going to a cross for you. Take it with you. It's yours now. It's a free gift that I offer to you. Take it with you outside the store. Now listen, I am praying that one day that that benefactor is going to show up at South Texas TAC and he's going to walk up to me and he's going to go, Jeremy, I paid for that. It's all yours. Take it out of here. And I'm going to be like, yes! You see, the reality is, and that's tongue in cheek, but the reality is this is what verse 10 shows us. That the cost of the cross was the cost of our sin. And it came at the life of our Savior. Verse 10. And by that, we will have been sanctified. By that sanctive word, that word there in the, in the Greek New Testament actually means a long and lasting effect on those who believe. And notice what the author does here. I love this. He puts himself in it. And by that, we have been sanctified. Why? How? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. In other words, we recognize the everlasting work of Jesus for us that he died once and for all for our sins so that he could turn around and freely give us life and life abundantly here's my question why would you ever want to leave that why would you ever want to run away from that nt Wright, he said he makes this great illustration he said he said running away from jesus is like basically running into a building for safety when it's about to fall down It's maddening. It makes no sense. But listen, the reality is that so many times in our lives, when things get hard, when things get difficult, that for some reason, we as Christians, the first place we want to do is we want to run away from Jesus, not run to Jesus. And I think when we do that, it's because we don't truly fully grasp, and I don't think we ever fully will, but we can at least grasp most of it or a lot of it that God reveals to us in Scripture. We don't truly grasp the beauty, the depth, and the goodness of the gospel. That we have been saved through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. In other words, that that price tag for your sin has been paid in full through the blood of the Son. And that truth causes you to persevere. That truth causes you to continue to fight for the good fight of faith. Until your dying breath. Now I know we live in an American context, so everybody wants to always say, well, what do we do with this? How does this apply to me? Well, verses 11 through 14 answer that question for you. Part three, we find relief from the judgment of Christ and live for him. Part three is we find relief from the judgment of Christ and then we begin to live for him. Look at verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Now, this is really interesting to me. Verse 11 Every priest, he says, stands daily at his service. And what he is doing is offering repeatedly the same sacrifices day in and day out, which can never take away the fullness of sin. So let me tell you, back in this day, being a priest was a lot of work. Being a priest, think of the priesthood in this day as like being a, a, a nurse or a doctor on your feet day in and day out. I don't have that problem. I, I sit down very much more of my day than I do stand up on it, right? And so the idea here is that these, these guys, they were working. And they were working because the sins of the people had to keep coming. And so they kept making the same sacrifices, which was never fully able to perfect and draw those near to God. So they had to work all the time. But look at our high priest in verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. So we're going back to the cross here. Look what it says. He did. He sat down at the right hand of God. 
that idea of sitting down, we see a contrasting between the two systems, between the Levitical priest and the high priest. And what we see here is that Jesus, when he gets done with his sacrifice, when he gets done with his offering and resurrects from the grave, guess what he does? He sits down. Do you know why he sits down? To symbolize to us that his work has been finished and sufficient for all. So let me give it to you in an illustration to help you see what I just said. Again, I told you that one day when I retire, I want to own an alpaca farm with some horses. Safe place. Don't judge. And I want to write books the rest of my life. And I want to go preach whenever I get an opportunity to go preach. That's that's my dream at the end. And Katie, she's going to go probably run around with the million of grandkids that we have. And the good news is that none of our grandkids, we don't have any grandkids, so I don't have to pay any of them a dollar for royalties for saying them, hypothetically, okay? And so the reality is, is that, man, could you imagine what it's like to work on an alpaca farm? I mean, you're like, gotta, gotta get up early, you gotta feed the animals, you gotta take care of the animals, water the animals, heal the animals, clean the barn, uh, you know, work fences if they get out, work with some horses, like, you gotta do a lot of work. And at the end of your day, guess what you get to go do? At the end of the day, you walk into your house and you sit down symbolizing to yourself and to everyone who sees you what my work is finished for the day this is exactly what jesus is doing in verse 12 when christ had offered for all time a sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of god saying it is finished just like he said on the cross and it's finished forever for all those who believe in him the goodness of the gospel is that it lasts forever It's through Jesus that we don't have to worry about going back because just as Jesus taught us in Hebrews chapter eight, he says, for I will be merciful toward their sins and I will remember their sins no more. The reality is that Jesus forgives us and he never brings it up again. Because he says, I paid for that in full on the cross. So what does this do to us? Look at verse 13. Number one, it relieves us from judgment. Verse 13, waiting from that time. This is Jesus waiting, not us waiting. This is Jesus waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That our savior right now is waiting to return. This is why I think Paul, our, uh, excuse me, the author of Hebrews, who I think is Paul. That's why I said that. But when I get to heaven, we'll find out. Paul will tell me, yes, Jeremy, I wrote it. And I'll be like, I know, I knew it, I knew it. He's going to say, he's going to say, well, this is why the author of Hebrews says to us in verse 28 of chapter 9. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So as a Christian, when I understand the beauty of the gospel, and I understand what the beauty of our high priest did and how he's sitting down, he is waiting and I'm eagerly waiting for him. And when he comes, he's going to set everything right. He says, waiting from that time until his enemies should be a foot, made a footstool for his feet. He's going to come and he's going to righteously judge. He's going to come and he's going to righteously put everything back in place. And he's going to make every single one of his enemies his footstool. And I believe that the Bible is talking specifically here about two kinds of enemies. The spiritual enemies, Satan and his demons, but also the enemies of him who have not repented of sin and believe, or repented of sin and trusted in him. The reality is that we have people in our lives and in our world that are still considered enemies of God because they haven't put their faith and trust in the Savior of Jesus Christ. Now, this is where this applies to you and me. It applies to you and me because if we know this truth, 
If we know that our sins have been forgiven forever, if we are reminded of our sins to show us our need for the Savior, then shouldn't that challenge and cause us to go get as many people as possible before they die and before Jesus comes back? This is why we say here at Center Church, we cherish the gospel above all. In other words, we are going to do whatever it takes to get the good news of Jesus to as many people as possible before he comes because we don't want to see them as enemies of God. We want to see them as children of God like you and me. When you understand the depth and beauty of the gospel, you can't help but go share and try to get others to believe it. Now, granted, that's a work between them and the Holy Spirit, but it's our job as Christians to take the good news to them. Let me give it to you in the form of a story. I got this story from J.D. Greer. Surprise, surprise for some of you. Uh, but I got this story from J.D. I quote J.D. a lot. And if you're new, I quote J.D. a lot. That's why I said that. Um, but J.D. tells this story. He said, one day there was an earthquake that hit this particular area of the world. And there was a guy, he was driving down this bridge. It was a very long bridge that connected kind of like two islands or two places. And so he's up early in the morning and he's going into work. And as he's driving on the bridge, he keeps noticing that the car lights in front of him keep disappearing. Just disappearing over and over again. So he begins to slow down. He's like, why do these car lights keep disappearing? And he, he slows down and all of a sudden he slams on his brakes because he's realized what happened. The reason why those cars kept disappearing is because the earthquake that had happened earlier that night had actually taken out the middle of the bridge. And in the pitch black of the night, the people were going down this bridge. They were falling to their deaths because the bridge had been taken out by the earthquake. So he pulls over and he turns on his hazard lights and he gets out. And every car that he sees coming, he begins to wave his hands. Don't go, don't go, stop. And people just kept looking at him like, that's a weird dude right there at 4 a.m. in the morning, waving his hands. And they kept driving one one after the other over the cliff, over the cliff, over the cliff. He was out there for a couple of hours trying to get people to stop from their demise. And all of a sudden he sees a bus coming. Most likely early in the morning, so it probably was a bus full of students getting ready to go to school. And the man made this decision. He said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to run and I'm going to get in front of that bus and I'm going to say, bus driver, you're going to have to take me out before those kids go over that, end, that, that cliff. You're going, to have to, you're going to have to take me down with you. I am willing to lay my life down so that to save those kids on that bus. Brothers and sisters, when we truly understand what Jesus has done and when we truly understand what Jesus is about to do, yes, we find relief from judgment. We know that we're not Jesus' enemies. But how much more should we be willing to cost and spend our entire lives to get to the gospel to as many enemies as possible. If that man was willing to do that for that safety of that bus, how much greater is the gospel's everlasting work? How much more should we do that for people in this world, no matter what it costs us? No matter if it means that we've got to give up our lives to get the gospel to as many people as possible before Jesus returns. That's what this text does for us. Yes, while we have relief from judgment... We want to make sure that others get that same opportunity to turn of their sin, trust in Jesus, and also to be relieved from the same judgment that's coming. But secondly, look what it also does here for us in verse 14. Not only should it cause us to be great commissioned Christians, but in verse 14 it says this, For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Look at verse 14 again. So Jesus... By his offering has perfected for all time. So the reality is that you and I, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are saved immediately. Jesus takes his righteousness and he gives it to us. This is what we call in theological language, 
imputation. Jesus imputes his righteousness to us. He takes it and he gives it to us. But then look what it says here. For all time, those who are what? Being sanctified. Now, the reality is, how many of you feel the tension as a Christian? We all feel the tension, right? We live in what theologians have called the now, the not yet. Now, but not yet. So we live in the now. I'm saved from my sin, but I'm also understand that I'm not totally saved from my sin because guess what? I still have tension with my sin, right? If you don't believe me, you can ask, turn and ask somebody close to you and say, hey, do you see any tension in my sin? And they'll be like, yes, I see your, I see where that's in. That's why we struggle to be the husbands that we've been called to be. That's why we struggle to be the wives that we've been called to be. That's why we struggle to be the children that God has called us to be. That's why we struggle to be the parents God has to be or the workers God has called us to be or the single people God has called us to be. Because we still wrestle with this residue of sin within us. Kyle showed me this book this week by a guy named Vaughn Roberts. I thought he had a great understanding of this text. It's called um, God's presence with us. God's with us. God is our God's big story. God's big story. I had God in it and I was close. He said Jesus was the right answer every time. He always says that Jesus God's big God's big story. And Von Roberts, he makes this comment to help us understand what this verse is talking about. He says, Jesus has saved us from the penalty of sin. That's what we're talking about here. He has perfected for all time. He saved us from the penalty of sin. Jesus is currently saving us from the power of sin. So we call sanctification. He is currently now saving us from the power of sin. And one day he's going to save us from the presence of sin. That means when he comes back, sin will be no more. So right now, when he says... Those who are being sanctified, he's talking about right now that you and me as believers, we are to be being saved from the power of sin in our life. We are to be growing in holiness. We're to be becoming more like the one who saved us. So here's what you need to do this week. Here's my challenge to every single one of you in this room. You go to your accountability partner. You go to somebody who, who you trust and you ask them this question. You say, do I look more like Jesus this year than I did last year? Are you seeing God's work in my life? Are you seeing me being sanctified in the truth of the gospel that I hold to? Because here's what I believe that Jesus teaches over and over in his scriptures. This is that when you look at your fruit, you'll be able to see your faith. Faith. Is illustrated and reflected in fruit. So therefore, are you taming the tongue? Are you being gentle? Are you running from sin like Joseph? Are you immediately confessing sin when you do it? Are you going to God? Are you asking God, help me with this sin in my life? Is there a sin that you think has a powerful hold on you? I want you to know that Jesus is even more powerful and you ask him to help you break it, to release it and live for him. That we as Christians are not just simply to live in our salvation now, but we are actually to live out our salvation now. So ask somebody today. That doesn't mean you're perfect. But that means that you're being perfected in Jesus. So how do we respond to a sermon like this this morning? Well, I think there's three ways. Number one. If you're in here today and you say, Jeremy, I, I recognize my guilt. I recognize my sinfulness. And I am looking for what you have said. That you say Jesus can be merciful towards me and he can remember my, my sins no more. I want you to know, yes, he can. And it came at a price. And that price was, his, was the cost of the cross. And he extends himself to you this morning. 
So all you have to do is turn from sin, repent from your sin, and believe and trust in the work of Jesus. And the Bible says you will be saved. If you're going to make that decision today, I want you to come talk to me or Pastor Kyle after this service is over. Or one of our partners here. But number two, if you are a believer and you have trusted in this message, then my question is this. Are you going through a situation in your life right now where you're wondering if Jesus is even worth it? Today, my prayer for you is this, that God would show you that he is. That he's worth everything that you're going through. Because he's more valuable than anything in this world. And he wants you to persevere. That's why he gave you his spirit. Persevere in the faith. Don't run away from Jesus. Run to Jesus. And the good news, if that's you this morning, Jesus has given you a church home. You don't have to walk through this alone. We're here to walk beside you. And lastly, what about you this morning? Is there somebody in your life that you know who is still an enemy of God? What's stopping you from going out there and getting in front of them and saying, I will do whatever it takes to get the gospel to them? Students, youth in here, I'm telling you my prayer for you. And it's not just a prayer that I pray for all of our students and children. It's also the prayer that I pray for for my own children, our own children. And that's this, that you would, you would answer the call to go to the nations. That you would answer the call to go take Jesus to those who are really, really far from God. Parents in this room, maybe some of us need to make that commitment as well. Maybe we need to start praying for an unreached people group as a family. If you don't know where an unreached people group is, just go to Joshua Project. They have tons of them for you to choose from. And begin to pray now, God, save them, but how would you use us to go about saving them? And then lastly, reflect upon and examine yourself. Are you growing? Is your fruit measuring up with your faith? Ask somebody this week. I really take that challenge. Ask somebody this week, do you see a change in me? Because of what Jesus has done for me. And then be ready to listen. And let me me tell you this real quick. If you ask that question, you can't respond. No justifying. Okay? Shake your head. Don't justify. Yeah, well, but that's justifying. Just keep your mouth shut. Listen to what they have to say. And then take it to the Lord and say, Lord, is there any truth to this? And if there is, help me to change it. So I want to pray for you this morning. I don't know what God is doing in your life, but I want you to just take a moment and just take whatever it is that he's speaking to you with right now to him. Go ahead, bow your heads, close your eyes. Take a moment to pray. Father, I don't know how you're working in the lives of all these people in this room. But I know how you've worked in mine as I've studied this text. It reminds me for the urgency of missions. But it also reminds me to pursue holiness. Because it reminds me of the depth of my sinfulness and my need for the Savior. So, Father, I pray for every person in this room. I pray that there's one here that doesn't know you today, that they would say today, Lord, I'm turning from my sin and I'm putting my faith and trust in this Jesus that Jeremy has talked about who paid the ultimate price for it. And that by believing in him, I I will, my sins are forgiven forever. I pray for those in this room, Lord, that you might be calling into the mission field. 
But I also pray for those in this room who are thinking and being tempted to run from the faith because they're dealing with some hard times. Lord, keep them safe in Jesus. Wrap your hands around them. Fill them with your spirit. And remind them of the goodness of the gospel. And remind them that through your power they can fight the good fight of faith until the end where we receive that crown of glory. But Lord, in here I pray that we would be sanctified. That your word and your truth would bear fruit in the lives of your faithful followers. So Father, I pray now that you would just continue to have your way as we get ready to come and take communion and as we sing praises to you. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen.